You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. And there's even several species of salmon, and we're going to highlight a few of them today and talk a lot about just everything. What can they teach us? Because when they, they the, this olfactory stimulation, it starts to trigger a lot of things, metabolic changes. So it, it's like trying to dissect all these cool things that salmon do. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. This is Angie. <laughs> We're both laughing as we start because this is a massive podcast that we've got to fit into one episode. We can't do two episodes on salmon. There's, we have so many other species. I mean, to cover. we could and we should, but I think we just need to revisit them and other similar species yeah. now that you and I are starting to get a little bit more comfortable talking about fish. Right? We just mm-hmm, did bull mm-hmm. shark last week, and and so no, I I really want to explore more fish. And there's even several species of salmon, and we're going to highlight a few of them today and talk a lot about just everything. And then you got me all pumped up a few weeks ago about yeah. how the males change morphologically, their jaws, their, they get a hump on their back, and then, mm-hmm. of course, this brilliant color change in several of the species of salmon. I just, my jaw dropped this this week's preparing for uh, salmon podcast, so... Kudos to you because you're the one that pushed it, and yeah, uh, yeah. you you definitely opened the floodgates. Pardon the pun with me with fish. So it, yes, it, it's 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 it biology. It, it, it's been fascinating this month. You know, plastic free July, and and I want to keep the intro very very short because we've got to get going. There's so much to cover about the, the this fish, the, the species of salmon, all the changes, everything that Angie just said. But going from mantis shrimp, you know, and that blew us away. And and that was an hour and a half podcast because you, this the mantis shrimp, I'm still blown away by it. Then we go to bull sharks and go to do the research. You're figuring out they're, they're living in lakes, no problem. They're swimming upstreams, no problem. All the way into Peru. I mean, from the, from the East coast of South America. <laughs> And now salmon, I don't, oh, it's born in fresh water, migrate yeah. to the ocean and then return as adults yeah. to, to their natal stream mm-hmm. to spawn. Uh, yeah. Just incredible, 
just super fun, lots of great physiology. So stick with yeah, us. You got to listen. And just a side note, Chris and I are not ichthyologists. So any of our fish scientist friends out there, they're listening. We, we might uh, not give them the justice that they deserve or not explain things exactly perfect. So if that's the case, reach out to us and we'll, we'll get you on the podcast to yes. help us out. <laughs> <laughs> or if you have anybody you know that you recommend, we've always had some awesome recommendations uh, for interviews, and we'll chase those down. And you know, one of the things too is many of us eat salmon. It, it it's the number one fish I buy here in New Zealand. We'll talk about them, how, why they're down here. They're not native to New Zealand. They were introduced, uh, but you know, is it sustainable? And then also, I will talk about microplastics. But more importantly, is microplastics in salmon? You know, should we worry about that? So we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. Intro done. Really quick. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Jade, who joined us this week. Thank you. It always makes me smile when I see that. Uh, again, we are part of the Airwave Network now. Angie and I are donating portions of our revenue to these organizations we cover, to the one we cover today. Once, uh, you know, we get the checks and everything. It, it's We're starting off small right now, but it's going to build in the next couple of years. We know that we'll be sending some significant chunks of that money uh, to each of these organizations. Uh, I actually have to have to, uh, the organization we covered last week, Miss, I will be sending them money here immediately. And it's just, we want to support these people that are doing the work that we we preach each and every week. So thank you for listening to the podcast. That is a big help. Thank you for sharing the podcast. That is a big help. And Angie and I, from the bottom of our heart, thank you, thank you, thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Yes. And you can always subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes as well. I don't think we have any for the month of July, which is my birthday month. So uh, we would love some positive reviews, written reviews on iTunes if you have a chance. All right, Angie, that's out of the way. Let's go through description. Now, I oh, focused yeah. <laughs> focus a little bit on the, the sockeye or the Chinook's the biggest, but there are a lot of different species of salmon, subspecies of these salmon. They all look different. I mean, we have salmon from Asia. Of the Pacific salmon, you have trout, which is actually part of it, part of that family uh, or genus, but as far as salmon, we have the pink salmon, or they call it the humpback salmon, the kunamasu, or the black kokanee salmon, the chum salmon, which is also known as the dog, kita, or silver bright salmon, coho salmon, masu salmon, sockeye salmon, chinook salmon, and then rainbow trout. So that's that's the, the genus that we'll get to in evolution. But then, go to the other ocean, you have the Atlantic salmon. Right. Uh, talk about learning this week. I guess yeah. I was living in the dark and not really realizing that there was Atlantic salmon, which is embarrassing, but that's why that's why we're here, right? <laughs> yes, that's why we're learning. We're learning. So I don't know. Talk about the one that you kind of picked to describe, and I'll give you some sizes on the bigger ones that, that I found. Absolutely, Chris. I focused on the Chinook salmon because it is the largest of all the Pacific salmon, and it can be up to 100 pounds in as long as five feet. And it's a good looking fish, especially when it's swimming out in the ocean, uh, because it has a deep blue green back, uh, silvery, shiny sides with a cream or white belly. And then there's some black spots, uh, kind of in a irregular pattern on the back and the dorsal fin, and then also both lobes of the tail. 
I, these spots that are on the tails of all species of salmon is one of the great identifiers uh, for a novice like me. And then during spawning, we're going to talk a lot today about when salmon reproduce, because it's just, like I said, a feat of nature, morphologically speaking, how they change, physiologically speaking, how they their color change. And then, of course, the fact that they travel thousands and thousands of miles and know exactly where to go. But during spawning, you can always tell a king or Chinook salmon because the males develop this reddish hue on both sides, bright in color. And the female is going to change color too during breeding, uh, but maybe not as bright in color as the male. And then the male goes extra steps further and gets these crazy exaggerated secondary sexual characteristics on its back. It has a like a hump, for lack of better words, on its back. And we'll dissect that later on in the podcast because that physiology just blew my mind. But then its mouth changes. So male Chinook salmon have this distinguishable hook-nosed and this lower jaw that also is enlarged and then reaches up. So this complete, just a completely different mouth. Like a salmon living out in the ocean, they look like, I guess, a generic fish mouth, yeah, for lack it, of a better it's term. Fish. Just, it's a fish. Yeah. It's a fish. It's a fish. Yeah, like yeah. a fish mouth. Yeah. But no, 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 no. When these boys are going swimming upriver and get ready to spawn. <laughs> it's a monster. It's, it's it a- is. It's so fascinating. We're going to oh. we'll also dissect that later on the podcast of why they do it and then mm. also how. But in general, the fish look completely different. I found an amazing uh, poster of types of salmon in North America. It didn't have the um, Asian ones on there. but And it shows them as the adult out in the ocean, just this like black and gray and white, silvery, beautiful fish mm-hmm. to then their color changes because the Chinook or the king salmon is not the only one that changes to this like bright red and with a little bit of maroon highlight colors. The coho does it. The sockeye is just even more distinct because they have a green head. That's why I picked a, them, yeah. Yeah, and then a, and a bright red pink body, just mm-hmm. in so intense. Whereas the pink salmon doesn't have too much of a color change, a little bit of a green back and some spots. Uh, the chum does turn more green olive in color and gets some reddish stripes on it. But nothing is as flagrant as the sockeye and then followed by the uh, Chinook and the coho. Just beautiful colors, but wicked face. <laughs> <laughs> a face a mom can only love. I don't even know if mom would love that face because they're, 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 it is, it is, it is wicked. Their, their it mouth is. changes structure. It but is I'll an, tell you what, Angie. Crazy. It drives the the female salmon nuts because that's what they're looking for. That's who they want to spawn with. So whatever's going through their brains, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Uh I did – this does harken back to when I did some salmon fishing with my brother Joe and my dad uh, and our friend Jason. We we went for a few years off Vancouver Island. It was just one of the most beautiful places I've been next to New Zealand. And we were going for Chinook salmon. So like you said, they, they, they get quite large, five feet, 135 pounds. Didn't quite get that big, but the salmon we got were, were pretty hefty. Uh, it was like 30 or 40 pounds, I remember. It was the hardest fish I ever, I ever caught. It was just, oh, my muscles were, were screaming. So yeah, supposedly there's a, a good fight to them. Yeah, yeah, for sure, what I was for reading. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were, yeah, we were out in the ocean uh, trying to catch them. And then the sockeye, 
Yeah, the next size down, uh, much smaller, can get up, you know, two feet, you know, two to two to three feet, not quite three feet, but 85 centimeters and only weigh five to 15 pounds. So still a big fish, but not as big as the Chinook. Now the sockeye, interesting range. So we can kind of talk about the Pacific salmon, right? This group of Pacific salmon. And then of course you have the, the, the single species of Atlantic salmon. So the say the sockeye starts in the northwest of the United States. They they go into the river systems in Oregon, Washington State, then all the way up the western portion of Canada into Alaska, even portions of North Alaska. So some interesting physiology with that, like near the Arctic Circle, uh, where some of these salmon can go, then across the Bering Sea into Siberia, parts of Russia down to north the northern islands off japan so very interesting and some of these sockeye salmon are actually landlocked in lakes so like last week we talked about bull shark so there are salmon again this podcast could be three four hours there's a whole different bunch of physiology going on with them what i understood is they don't get quite as large they don't go through as much of an intense morphological change but they do spawn in lakes. They are found in lakes. Uh, well, but... they're found in the Great Lakes. Yeah, that's well. That's the next one. The Chinooks, right? Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The Chinook, the king salmon, are found in the Great Lakes. That they were introduced to try to basically eat and or ward off um, another smaller invasive species called an alewife. Uh, so let's just introduce another invasive species. Exactly. At <laughs> least, like at least salmon. A lot of people like to sport fish them, but uh, uh, and I will I will say it, the southwestern shores of Lake Michigan. I feel like they haven't been as bad, but once again, I'd have to go to the data to look at that. But I I didn't know I didn't know that there were Chinook salmon yeah. in, in Lake Michigan, which is. Yep. Also embarrassing, uh, especially coming. My grandpa used to be a fisherman. I, mm-hmm. I personally am not much of a fisherwoman, obviously, uh, but I didn't even know that. So, yeah. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> well, so the Chinooks that's why are, we're here. Yes, exactly. The Chinooks, Chinooks are found in the Great Lakes. Uh, they are found in New Zealand, and we call them king salmon down here. They were introduced. They even have some in Patagonia, so down there in South America. But their historic range or natural range actually is is California. So a little bit further south. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then all the way up the West Coast of North America into Alaska. Not quite. The sockeye go a little further north, but still, you know, Chinook salmon go a little bit north. Uh, And then again, back into that portion of Siberia. Uh, Kamachika, I think is what we call it in Russia. And then uh, not quite, I don't think they quite reached down into Japan um, or not. So that's the general ranges of the Pacific salmon. And then just really quickly, Angie, the Atlantic salmon, you're talking the the northern eastern portion of the United States, you know, off uh, New Jersey, you know, New York area, and then all the way to Greenland, Iceland, and then over to Norway. Um, the fjordlands over there and then down they can actually reach down through the uk down to northern spain so that's where the so northern part of the atlantic ocean is where you're going to find uh the atlantic salmon oh now it, <laughs> there's so much physiology and stuff but why care about salmon i mean i think i think one of the reasons i care for me 
is not only do they play any, a very, very critical ecological role, but they are an important source of protein for a lot of us. You know, affects me personally, my buying choices each week. Do I buy salmon? Do I not? Is it ethical? Is it sustainable? Uh, you know, so it does personally affect me, but I know it affects millions and millions and millions of people uh, around the world that that eat salmon. Oh, yeah. I mean, coastal communities depend on salmon for, as you mentioned, their protein, but then also income. Uh, in certain parts of Russia, 80% of the economy is dependent on salmon and other seafood. In Bristol Bay, Alaska, the benefits of the world's largest sockeye salmon run is thought to exceed $2.2 billion. So in general, Pacific salmon fuel over a $3 billion industry and tens of thousands of jobs. Uh, so yeah, it's it's really you know, really an important economic or dollar or dollar value. But I also want to focus into the cultural importance of salmon because yes, you know, when it's not about the money, it's about the money and they're worth a lot of money to, to these Pacific Rim communities. But salmon are so spiritually and culturally important for many First Nations people around the Pacific Rim. And of course, yes, for protein as well. But then just as far as their belief system, in fact, many First Nations uh, people celebrate the first spring Chinook or King salmon caught every year with a first salmon ceremony. And then, Chris, there's several other indigenous groups such as the Kleenkits, the Klamath tribes, um, which is along the Klamath River in Oregon, uh, the New Hawks, the Kwakiutls, and the Kwayukits that primarily eat Chinook salmon and just really rely on it for a lot of storytelling and a lot of spiritual and cultural beliefs. So uh, it's just, I'm not giving enough justice here, uh, but I think that the cultural impacts go far beyond even the economical impacts, especially to many of these First Nations people. Uh, and in fact, I, I love the fact Alaska and Oregon definitely recognize this and the Chinook or the King salmon is the state fish. No, I mean, you know, my dad lived in Oregon and then when I was living in Washington state, it, it was very apparent the influence of salmon on the culture there and how the first nations like understood they, they were critical to life, right? Like the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, Chris. I have goosebumps because the indigenous communities are so respectful of animals, uh, resources, and land and understanding the cycle of nature. And that's exactly what the salmon is in these riparian uh, or stream ecosystems. In fact, uh, like the Chinook salmon are a keystone species because so many other up-the-chain predators rely for them on food for food, right? Like we've all seen the bear catching the fish as they're, you know, heading upstream and stuff like that. Um, and now for instance, the Chinook salmon are a top predator in the great lakes, right? And so they help control once again, all these non-native fish. And then Chris, if we move even out of the stream or the migration run out in the ocean, uh, as a moderately sized fish, they provide a lot of food for the higher up predators there, like the orcas. So one study estimated that there's over 137 different species that depend on wild salmon, both in the oceans and in the streams. 
But then the salmon that aren't eaten as food as they move up the river, aren't caught by the bears and what have you, when they spawn and then they die, which is a process we'll talk about in reproduction in a little bit, uh, their carcasses add lots of nutrients to the watershed as well. And the salmon are adding critical nutrients like phosphorus uh, and nitrogen to the stream and thus to the soil around the stream and therefore the trees in the forest. In fact, in Alaska, uh, it's estimated, this is in southeastern Alaska, it's estimated that spawning salmon contribute up to 25% of the nitrogen in the, the, the leaves of the trees. So in summary, there are keystone species that also act as a biological indicator of, of the health of the streams um, and rivers in which they swim. And then, of course, they protect forests, provide food, clean water, and uh, assist communities economically and culturally. So it's a big one. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's... They are they're extremely it's, important. Uh, and, and it's the, not a tiny fish, and and not just I'm not saying size, like impacts, cultural, biological, like environmental. You right. know, we've yes. all watched the videos, or we most of us have watched the wildlife. We've watched the bears on the streams catching salmon. You know, and that provides so much nutrition and fat and. Uh, nutrients to those bears before, you know, uh, as they're trying to put on weight to get ready for winter. And they're just, they're, they're just a key, like they're a key species to the Pacific Northwest. And then also the other, you know, go across the Pacific ocean into Northern Asia. They're huge. They're, they're, they're a massive, massive part of the ecosystem in the ocean and our streams and, and our freshwater e- ecosystems in both parts of the world. It's it's crazy. Like, it's crazy. Oh, absolutely, Chris. And that leads me into the last little piece of why we should care about them and really pay attention uh, to healthy populations of wild salmon. Because worldwide, salmon are not necessarily endangered. But what is very scary is that there are certain populations of sockeye salmon, coho salmon, chinook or king salmon, and Atlantic salmon that are listed as endangered. But the good news is there's most of the populations in Alaska are pretty healthy, and there are many, many populations of salmon that are under pretty rigorous management in North America. And I think it's also important to note, too, that in general, since we've been recording, the overall size of most species of salmon that are like caught in the ocean um, are declining in size, are smaller. So they're not, uh, they're not able to mature uh, and get as big as they perhaps historically have. Yeah, and I was fishing off uh, Vancouver Island, you know, so the, the southern portion of British Columbia, which of Chinook salmon, which is it sustainable anymore? Right. Like it's, this is, this is a couple decades ago, so it's been a while, but you know, what else is is impacting them? Because there's a lot of pressure uh, up and down the coast Yeah, in North America. Yeah. Sure. Chris, in a nutshell, basically salmon populations are in decline for several reasons. Uh, Logging. So areas around stream being logged and cut down reduces shade and nutrients. And basically will also add like dirt and sludge 
to the streams and salmon study after study show that salmon do a lot better reproductively speaking if the water is clean and pristine, which is why they're a biological indicator of a healthy stream. Uh, so logging and then dams, uh, dams are a big one. Uh, it just basically really hinders the fish getting upstream where they need to go. Uh, and it can disorient the fish, uh, with the turbines from the dams. And a lot of these streams are being better managed now because uh, we know we have more science and more data and more knowledge. Uh, but still, overfishing, um, of course, can contribute to decline to populations in decline. The weather, uh, so climate change, drought in California. Uh, it's summertime. I know it's really hot. They don't have any rain right now. That can affect uh, the amount of water in the streams, which thus can affect how the salmon are flowing up the stream. Uh, pollution, of course. Uh, and I know you're going to talk about microplastics here in a second. And then just in general, the urbanization of cities. So, for example, Vancouver um, had something like 50 streams that potentially would have salmon runs, and now they only have two. Well, yeah, I mean, everywhere in the Pacific Northwest, you can see some of the dams. They, they have fish ladders, uh, and you can watch uh, some of them. So when I was uh, stationed up there at, uh, in Washington State uh, in Olympia, I remember we used to watch the salmon come up and go up the fish ladders and things. So there are there, – there is some management going, right? There's yeah, and, that, and that's the thing – Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, Chris. And the more I read, the, I mean, I just saw there are a lot of conservation management plans here in the U.S. I, I can't necessarily speak uh, for Asia um, at this point uh, or even Canada, but there definitely seems to be a lot of conversation and or action going on. Uh, in uh, 2016, the Coleman National Fish Hatchery outside of Red Bluff, California, released 12 million baby Chinook salmon. Uh, that were tagged and monitored uh, to, to help them restore that population there. And just even more recently, in uh, June of 2021, uh, the California State Water Board or Water Resources Control Board um, approved a plan to basically uh, release some water from Lake Shasta, which is near where my good friend Cassie lives. So hi, Cassie, uh, to use it for irrigation, which, which really helped the winter run of the Chinook in the Sacramento River. It definitely seems like a lot of people are fighting for salmon and doing a lot of good actions to try to undo some of what we've done here in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, my my childhood was spent, a lot of my summers of my childhood were spent in Northern California near Lake Shasta and the Klamath River. It's and, pretty up there. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. And then, yeah, in Southern Oregon, uh, the Rogue River, uh, where my dad lived. And yeah, I mean, it, it's there's there's a lot of management ongoing now. Things have changed quite a bit from when I was a kid. Now, microplastics. I've been I've been talking about this for the last few weeks. Wanting to get to this, uh, I, I'll I'll make it quick because uh, we'll cover this again in more in depth again when we cover some some other oceanic species. But you know, microplastics are impacting salmon and and other fish in our oceans because we know plastics. The we're in plastic free July. This is why we do this every year to really look at our oceans, look at our species that are living there and all the challenges. So right now, I think, I don't know if we put this, this statistic out or not, but there's upwards of 75 trillion pieces of plastic and microplastics currently in the ocean. And that's almost 600 million pounds of plastic pollution is floating on the ocean surface. 
So we know our oceans are being inundated with with plastic. Now, again, we know plastic, there's bottles, all sorts of big things out there. Microplastics are are considered those less than five millimeters in length. So they, they say about the size of a sesame seed. So anything uh, that size and smaller are microplastics. And we know larger plastics, as they degrade, they degrade into these pieces of microplastics. And then we also had the microbeads, which was used in a lot of exfoliants and health products. That's banned in the U.S. now. It's been banned in other countries. Yes, thanks to Five Gyres, our interview from from a few weeks ago, that organization. So check that out if you haven't. That's my plug (laughs) if you haven't already. Yeah, about plastics. It was was really fascinating. Now, microplastics, as they degrade and get into less than one micron size, they become nanoplastics. So nanoplastics are having an effect on the smallest organisms. Even smaller, right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. corals and things. So what's going on with the microplastics? They are impacting the marine ecosystem. Obviously, these animals in the oceans mistake them for food and ingest them. From we, We see this with sea turtles. They're seeing this with phytoplankton, corals, sea urchins, lobsters, fish. All of these smaller organisms are eating these microplastics and ingesting them. And then in turn, the bigger fish come and eat them and the bigger fish and the bigger fish all the way to our, our sharks and our whales. So it's it, microplastics and plastics are, are affecting the food chain at the smallest level all the way to the top. What I found... and, and I'm not going to cover it in this podcast, but in, in a future, because I, I talked to Angie, maybe we should try to do a plankton or a krill or something. They're finding that like phytoplankton is eating microplastics and it is impacting their ability to absorb chlorophyll. And this is a a major concern because this is where a lot of our oceans you know, I was going to say, are... I don't know much about invertebrates. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I say that as we just did a, a mantis shrimp podcast, but uh, that does not sound good. No, it's it's impacting their ability to grow, to reproduce, uh, to, to do what they do. So these little tiny organisms are eating the plastic too, and it is having a big impact uh, on that, like uh, the ingestion, uh, the uh, one study found the ingestion of polyethylene microplastics in a, a benthic organism uh, led to decreased growth and their ability to reproduce. All right, so microplastics are are impacting the food web. Now, fish. This is where I kind of went a little bit uh, doing some studies, and so I, I one study I read. Very, very interesting. Investigating microplastics and potentially toxic elements, contamination in canned tuna, salmon, and sardine fishes uh, for markets. And this was published uh, last year. There's multiple studies looking at this. When when you go and look at the literature, a lot of studies are, are looking at fish and food in the oceans, measuring microplastic contamination. Now, there are some studies showing microplastics in the tissue of some fish, but we're not finding it in the fillets or the tissue of salmon. That's that's good. That's good. But 
we are finding it in their oil. So we are finding in, in salmon oil and other fish oils, microplastics. So this study particularly did not find any microplastics in canned salmon. It, they, they said it appears to be the safest processed seafood. Uh, they didn't have any any contamination in it, but they did find microplastics in canned tuna, ugh, sardines, and other foodstuffs, including canned sprats, salt, and honey. Not not honey, not bee honey, but honey fish. It's a fish. So different types of fish they are finding now microplastics. So we are starting to find microplastics in in seafood and what we eat. Uh, there was a study on prawns and other things. Again, I, I, I don't have time to go there. Massive issue in our oceans, the pollution. That is why Plastic Free July is so important uh, to reduce our plastic consumption and demand, demand from these companies to get rid of single-use plastics and find more sustain, sustainable ways to package our food. To tie this all off, you can think, oh, I won't eat seafood. Well, we're finding microplastics now in beef and pork, and they are finding it circulating in the blood of cows and pigs on farms. Uh, there was a study out of the Netherlands that found in milk and meat that there is some contamination of microplastics there. We are now finding microplastics in human blood. I know a few months ago we talked about microplastics in human placenta. But now we are ingesting this. We are breathing it. They're finding it now in Antarctica, in the snows there. Microplastics are everywhere in our environment. This isn't to scare you. This is to make you aware. This is That's why Angie and I do this. It's education. But again, Plastic Free July, try to change your habits. Be a part of the solution. That's why we do what we do every, every month in July, right? Yeah, and I think one of the big take-home messages uh, from my interview with Dr. Lisa Ertl from Five Gyres Organization with the mission to reduce plastics in the oceans uh, is that vote with your dollar and vote for policy change. That is the big push. And then, of course, reduce your consumption of of, of plastics whenever applicable. Um, ocean cleanups are a thing in beach cleanups. Like it's great aesthetically, uh, but we really need to try to limit the amount of plastics going into our oceans to begin with. And that's only going to happen through behavioral change and voting with your dollar and making companies, the big ones that produce a lot of plastic bottles or uh, single use plastics to think of an alternative solution, which they're already starting to do, right? We've all seen the paper straws and uh, California just banned, I think, plastic bags uh, for the state. Uh, and so some really progressive stuff coming out of California. And then, but anyways, so we in your own state or in your own region, wherever you live, uh, you can encourage that. I know there's, uh, I believe, like Kenya in Africa has some of the most amazing, like strict single-use plastic laws out there. Uh, so there's a lot of other countries uh, that can be a role model for the U United States. Uh, we're we're definitely uh, behind times mm -hmm. to yeah. a lot of yeah. other a lot of other countries. So yes, the good news is there's definitely things you can do um, to try to help uh, help this. And and I think too, as far as the microplastics being in human blood, I uh, the what if any health indicators or issues will arise from this. So that's something that's going to have to be explored yeah. over time. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a good point. It's a good but point. But it doesn't and sound good. <laughs> no, I know it doesn't. I don't it want, doesn't. Yeah. And and I will say, you know, down here in New Zealand, we we're one of the countries leading the way. Uh, and and listening to my work. How could I forget New Zealand? Yes, New Zealand is the always the country I want to move to when yes. I want to. <laughs> Please come when I get annoyed but, with the U.S. Yeah, but it, uh, you know, here and my, Costa Rica, my, yeah, Costa and Kenya. Yeah, I got lots of them. But anyways. But I hear my work colleagues talk about the other day, oh, don't, you know, be careful of plastics, da 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 It was really hard. It warmed my heart to hear them talk about that and, and how they're, it's in, it's in the Kiwi culture now. So uh, we are making change. So, so be proud of that and uh, be part of the solution. Uh, real quick, I think we take a quick break and then we'll come back and I'll jump through evolution. All right, welcome back. And uh, towards the end, Angie and I will talk about uh, sustainable salmon that you can uh, purchase and feel good about. So that was, again, one of my buying habits is buying salmon, and I wanted to know that. So we'll save that at the end when we uh, tile this up and give you conservation tips of the week. Okay, let me get through evolution. Uh, Rayfin species, the the class of bony fishes, uh, we've covered some of these before. Different than the bull sharks, right? They're the cartilaginous. 30,000 species of fish. I keep forgetting the statistic. Over 50% of all vertebrates are ray finned fish, like bony fishes. Over wow. 50% of all vertebrates. That's, that's, that's insane. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm like, what? I keep forgetting that. So, a lot of fish in the sea and our rivers and streams and lakes. The order is Salmoniforms. And the only family is Salmonidae. So pretty quick uh, split off. There's over 220 species within that order. Uh, You've got uh, some subfamilies of white fishes. Um, I found this interesting. Obviously, the Atlantic salmon and trout. It's 47 species. (laughs) So a lot of, yeah, I love trout too. Uh, The char and trout species, longfin char. And then we have the Pacific salmon, uh, which we're going to talk about. Uh, they're the genus Oncorhynchus. And this is the Pacific salmon and trout, which is the 12 major species. We named them off in the beginning. Again, that's the, the coho, the chum, the Chinook salmon, the sockeye. Then you have the Apache trout, the rainbow trout, steelhead, things like that. So that's just kind of the, the quick classification as far as evolution, again, fish are tough because it's hard to find these fossils. You know, the oceans are so big. You know, fish, the, the ray-finned fishes have emerged about 420 million years ago, right? That was the, the Devonian period, the age of fishes. That's where a lot of fish started to evolve. We know from talking about our sharks, that's when, you know, sharks 350 million years ago were kings of the sea before trees ever were a thing and before trees i just want to reiterate that Mm -hmm. fish were here before trees yes absolutely now after after the last mass extinction that's when we see again mass extinction most of earth is wiped out most of the species on earth are wiped out and those ones that that found a way to survive uh, did like mammals and birds and then radiated out and some of these reptiles and stuff uh, survived. So that's when fish, the fish that did survive in the oceans, there was a huge radiation of species. So 65 million years ago, about 55 million years ago is where we see a lot of radiation. 
And the salmon's ancient ancestor did do that. But the only data I could really find a lot on evolution with salmon, specifically the Pacific salmon and Atlantic salmon split about 20 million years ago. Uh, we are finding salmon fossils of like today's species about five to seven million years ago in the Pacific Northwest. So there are some fossils being found on, on the coast there and inland. Uh, this is what I found interesting. There was an ancestor of a salmon called the saber-toothed salmon, and it was nine feet long. Yes, and this was <laughs> in North that? America. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, six dating about ago, seven too. million years ago. Yeah, six, seven million years ago. Yeah, yeah. not your not your normal typical salmon. <laughs> no, 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 no. It would have been cool to see that thing. Uh, you know, big, big salmon. Um, but yeah, so that, that, that's in their nutshell. Obviously, an ancient species, uh, been around quite a while, have survived quite a bit, you know, the cooling and stuff since the last mass extinction. Now, before we jump into some physiology, salmon ages, Atlantic salmon can live up to 13 years, Chinook up to nine years, Sockeye eight years, uh, the Masu the Masu, I think I'm saying that right. Apologies if I'm not. Uh, about three years. Pink salmon, three years. So, you know, pretty decent little life lifespan of a fish. Salmon are, can be quick. We're going to talk a little bit about their muscling here in a minute. You know, they, they swim one to two miles an hour, uh, a few kilometers an hour when they're swimming out in the oceans. They can sprint up to 24 miles per hour if they have to. Um, but tuna is still super fast at 43 miles per hour. I love that stat. <laughs> uh, so fast, right? Um, but, but salmon can jump the, about two meters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if they need to cross obstacles in the river. So Yeah, the dams I mean, or the smaller that's, ones. That's that's a good jump. <laughs> that's well, that's where you see the, the, the brown bears, you know, catching them midair. You mm-hmm. know, they're sitting there waiting for them to jump, teaching the cubs how to do it. And... Oh, it's just amazing. I, I just hope I can see that one day in the wild, you know, watching those bears fish. It's it's awesome. But speaking of their movement and their activity, Chris, I think that's a great lead into the great migration of the salmon. Okay, let's 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 jump into it and then I can throw some physiology in there if we if we have time because there's so much to cover. So last week we learned bull sharks were ones that can go, you know, back and forth, right? From salt to fresh, fresh to yeah. salt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back and forth, whatever. They, they do what they want. Now, salmon, this is a new term for us, anadromous, right? A-N-A-D-R-O-M-O-U-S, anadromous, mm-hmm. where they're born in fresh water. They, mm-hmm. they grow up there for a little while. They go to salt water, live a big portion of their lives, and then they come back to spawn. It is one heck of a journey, isn't it? It's no joke. Uh, (laughs) It's not. (laughs) And not only is it no joke how far salmon travel to basically get back to their natal grounds where they were born in order to spawn. In general, it's anywhere around 1,000 miles or so. Mm -hmm. But the Chinook salmon takes the prize in the Yukon River. It's the longest freshwater migration of any salmon, and it's over 3,000 kilometers or 1,900 miles. Wow. Wow. wow from wow, the wow, start wow. of the Bering Sea 
um, upstream to Whitehorse, Yukon in Canada. That's crazy. It's because it's, yeah, it's a long distance. <laughs> so 3,000 kilometers is basically like driving your car halfway across Canada, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which, I mean, most people don't do because it's so far. They just fly, right? Yeah, yeah. And then to top that off, there's also some elevation involved in some of the uh, migration routes. So Chinook salmon uh, will spawn in the upper Salmon River in the middle fork of the Salmon River in Idaho. And they are traveling over 7,000 feet, our 2,100 meters in elevation, and crossing over eight dams through the Columbia and Lower Snake Rivers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about an obstacle course oh, and, no. yeah. and elevation. And then they're doing this, they're often covering 50 kilometers a day. Okay. So mm, that's like running a marathon. Sorry to all my marathon runners out there. They're like, that's more. <laughs> but <laughs> more than a marathon every day. It's like an ultra yeah. every day for as long as it takes them to get up, to, you know, to travel 3,000 kilometers. It's just. It's, I'm calling it the Great Salmon Migration. It is incredible. It's a sight to be seen. Um, I mean, and it's, almost, I, it's more than the wildebeest, right? Like we did the wildebeest yes, circuit. That, <laughs> yeah. And that's the great, yeah, with the wildebeest circuit's the great migration. And I'm kind yeah. of like, mm, I mean, I am a, I am a hoof and horns lady. We all know yeah. that. That's my specialty. And I want to give them a, a shout out. But yeah, I mean, these salmon, I mean, plus let alone upstream, like I mean, mm-hmm. ups against the current. And then with all these obstacles and the distance, oh, and they're not eating. Yeah, predators. Yeah. We'll talk and about that. Uh, on, uh, yeah. yeah, they can be preyed on and they go off food. So uh, they're not eating when they're making this journey. And that can be up to several months, uh, which is probably part of their demise after they spawn. But just, I mean, just really incredible. And so that blew my mind. And I, after I recovered um, and... <laughs> From that, my next question was like, okay, how? Yeah. How, do they, how do, do they know how to return to the home where they were born years later to then spawn? It's, it goes back to that. It, I mean, not only birds blow us away, but it goes back I, still that one when you talked about sea turtles. Like sea turtles go back to the beaches they were born on. So how does salmon know and I read a little bit of the research, but just to become familiar with it, but how do they know to find that specific river? Like, and, and, and tributaries, like it's not, yes. I've been on the Columbia river. It's a big river. Like you can't miss it. And, but getting up to the snake river, like you said, the salmon river, uh, where I was in Northern California, you know, we had the Klamath river, which was a big one, but then I was off, uh, Scott bar, which is a tiny little river. Like, how do they know to go to that spot? Where they spawned, Chris. I mean, it's still, of course, a little bit of a mystery. But scientists at this point believe that it's twofold. Uh, so first, they're using the Earth's magnetic field, like a compass, to help them navigate which river uh, they need to be in, and probably, like you said, maybe some of the, the twists and turns. Uh, and then another, and then it was also explained as not only the Earth's magnetic field, but also the sun, like a sun compass orientation method. So there's that. Uh, now the actual physiology behind that, I didn't touch this week. Uh, that's that's a, it's probably a different pod for a different day or an expert to explain to me what organ or how they're doing that. Uh, that I, I cannot answer you at this point in time. But the second one also blew my mind. 
scientists believe that salmon are using a, like a homing type mechanism uh, by tracing the pheromones or the chemical signatures of smells, basically of molecules in their home stream. So these salmon, which are fish, have a very, very, very keen sense of smell. Okay. Uh, these individual molecules, these pheromones, uh, they can smell to like parts per million, which we've talked about too, with sharks before, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so a really, really good olfactory system uh, working for them. And in fact, I was liking it to it. Okay, well, you use the the magnetic field or the Earth's compass to maybe get you um, I, uh, a thousand miles to your home city, but then somebody drops you off at the town center, if you can picture that, and then you use your your nose to find your way to your actual house. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> I mean, they're like superheroes. I know. I, I was like, incredible. I thought mantis shrimp were cool, but then I read about salmon, and I'm just like, I mean, and and researchers oh, think that they they basically create like a smell bank of a memory uh, as they're as they're spending time in their natal stream and and starting to mature. And we'll talk about their life cycle and reproduction uh, because they do have several different stages before they head out to the ocean. But while they're there, they're just sniffing around and being like, okay, there's this smell, there's that smell, this means this, this means that. I mean, it's it once again, when I when I put my human brain into it and try to try to recreate that, it just it's impossible. I mean, I I I don't I don't even know if I walk if I was like blindfolded and like set in like four different homes, I could probably smell my pets and be able to identify my own home, like my own home, maybe. But I mean, if you set me down the street, no way. Like no, by I smells, no, I know by smells. It's just, well, it's it's stunning. It's it's stu- and that's uh, there's that's so much going on. Right, just stunned like, by salmon, just stunned. You by are. Him. There's so much going on when all this is going on when all this is taking place. So, because when they they the, this olfactory stimulation, it starts to trigger a lot of things, metabolic changes. So it's like trying to dissect all these cool things that salmon do. So one thing they do is a switch from using the red muscles for swimming to using white muscles. And we've explained this. If we go back to our tuna episode, you know, why is there red muscle? There's more, what, uh, more blood flow. It's more for distance swimming, right? And so the ocean, the salmon, the pink salmon, like those colors you see is because there's more blood flowing to those muscles and it gives them longevity. White muscle fish or white muscles in salmon are for quick bursts of speed. So when they get triggered to migrate to spawn, right? And these olfactory changes, their body starts switching to white muscles. And that way they can get that quick jump. Like when you see them leaping and stuff, that's not red muscle. That That is all white muscle sprint, quick bursts of speed, a ton of energy used. Uh, and then they've got to recover from that, right? Yeah. Muscles that I don't have a lot of. <laughs> I definitely, <laughs> I I'm definitely more type one, like slow twitch, endurance, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, the type two, not so much. But that's what's funny. Like back in the day when I, I played football, I was like all, all quick 
twitch muscles because it was burst of speed. You know, it was hard for me to start running distance. It took a while to train for that. So very, very similar with them. But then it starts triggering all of these morphological changes, which is. I think a better word is, or more accurate, that's a scientific word. Yeah. I think we're just going to have to say shape shifting. Shape shifter. There you go. There you go. There Seriously. You go. There you go. There you the shape shifter salmon. I mean, the stunning shape shifter salmon. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. All right. So the shape shifting, uh, like, uh, it's. Uh, it, it's, I, I, it's a deep rabbit hole. I ran down it. You ran down it. I found it fascinating. I the I think the the best thing I found one of the papers I read that was looking at all the hormonal changes and everything is their transformation. Instead of metamorphosis, they they contributed more to puberty. So if we think of it in that sense. Sure, which is relating it to like secondary sexual characteristics, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. just the textbook de- definition of that is sexual traits in humans that male and females have that don't really attribute to actual reproduction, like ovaries or testicles, right? So, in, you know, the male, it's in, in, in humans, it's going to be a beard, armpit hair, chest hair, that kind of deep voice, deep voice, deep mm-hmm. voice, <laughs> and then you know, and and. And then, of course, females, too, will grow some armpit hair and, of course, changes to the breasts. So things that don't necessarily involve gametes but are potentially related to reproduction. So the salmon, they go big or they go home. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. yes, (laughs) Or they go big to find their homes and then breed. And so, yeah, you have the color change which is present in both the males and the females, Um, maybe not as radical in the females. But then in the males, you have that jaw structure that we described in the beginning, which we didn't give justice to. So you'll have to Google an image of it. Uh, But then also the hump on the back. So I started with uh, the color change because it's so dramatic. Uh, I mean, they look like two different fish completely. When they're side by side, they're ocean silvery self, little black spots on their tails, normal shaped mouth to this beast <laughs> when, yes, they're, yes. when they're swimming up river. Uh, and so I first asked the question of why change color? Why spend the energy when you need to use your en- energetic reserves to make this arduous trip upstream for thousands of miles and you're not eating. So they, they stop eating once they uh, start their great migration uh, what, why, why spend energy on the color change? And researchers at this point basically think it's to attract a mate, right? The, the brighter the color, the more indicative of physiologic, physiological health st- status. That I'm strong, I don't have parasites, I don't have diseases. Kapow, look at me, right? Fitness, yeah. Fitness. Fitness, yeah. yeah. So, but just really, really fascinating. Um, but then... How they change color also just is, it's just something us humans don't do. I mean, our, our cheeks will get a little flush, right? When we're, maybe when we're embarrassed from blood flow or something, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we definitely, you know, we don't have, I mean, it'd be so cool if I could just look down and my arm would be like blue or, or, uh, or something like that. We, we just don't have, that's not a shape shifting ability that, that humans have. 
but fish have it and not just the salmon, several fish uh, change colors. And so I was able to find a pretty cool paper about color change in the stress response of Atlantic salmon uh, that were actually infected with um, a type of salmonella. So they were looking at changes in color uh, if they were sick and trying to relate that um, as to how to identify fish that aren't doing well and things like this. And so the authors of this aquaculture report from July 2021, um, Mingami and co-authors, basically summarize that um, the pigment within the cells of the fish's skin are going to be triggered by endocrine stimulation, neural stimulation, and they're going to respond morphologically by basically changing the density and distribution of the chromatophores within their skin. And once again, that's going to be based on hormonal control, mm-hmm, which makes mm-hmm. sense because I'm sure the hormones are amped up uh, during uh, this great swim, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. This great migration. Just basically hormones that are involved in the dispersion of uh, p- pigments and chromatophores. So that's going to change based on their hormonal state. And that's how they can go from silvery gray and pretty, but kind of boring to flamboyant. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm looking at a picture of it. It, it, it really is. And, and we have to put some on our show notes because we're yeah, not, well. we're, we're not doing like, trust me, like you will thank me later if you just Google like male sockeye salmon breeding season. Yeah, they're insane. The humps are insane. Like they just, it, it is. Yes. So the color, the humps, yeah. the jaw, what should I cover next? I did the color. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, so they did they the the jaws, you know, they call it this hook, the, this kite, and this whole thing is called the grills. If I'm saying that or grills, uh, this life stage transformation. I cuz I'm looking at it I'm like like you when I pitched this to you a few weeks back and I said we got to cover salmon. Look how they change. We've got to investigate how the physiology what is driving it. So I found a very good paper that that one I mentioned that described it as puberty. It, the, as far as the male salmon, it is hormonal. It is testosterone, growth hormone, the gonadotropins that are ch- driving this change. So really it is like they're going through puberty and then they die, right? <laughs> Which we'll get to, but it's, oh, it's insane, Angie. It's insane. Well, and you mentioned this 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 cripe or basically hook snout. In fact, their genus name, the Ancorhynchus, sorry, fish scientists, uh, but that actually means hook snout because the upper jaw just becomes more elongated and the lower one stretches out too and they form like this hook snout. I mean, it really changes shape. And so I, of course, start with the, like the well, why. Like, why would you spend energy and time, once again, when you're swimming upstream with no food, to do this? And it basically boils down to a couple different hypotheses uh, that scientists think that they can use this monster mouth (laughs) as a weapon. And during spawning times, uh, the kipe or this monster snout will enable them to bite and nip other male fish to keep them away from females. And uh, keep them away from fertilize once the eggs are fertilized. Which oh, is- and the teeth change too. We haven't said that, right? Like the, yeah. the can- yeah. it's like canine teeth. Yes. They're sharp. Yes. They're sharp. <laughs> Snaggletooth. They yeah. are. They are radical. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, 
you don't want to get bit by a salmon out in the ocean, uh, but you definitely <laughs> you wouldn't want to get bit by a spawning male salmon, right? Because once again, the males are the only ones that do this jaw transformation or this or this jaw shape shifting. Uh, but then it leads me into well, how? Like that's I mean. That's got to involve bone and mm. tissue. I I always think of the male antlers. Uh, mm. I, you en- encouraged me to dork out about that for probably like twenty minutes on a podcast <laughs> covering reindeer. Yeah, reindeer way okay. way back in the day because that is bone growing out of their head um, for only a small period of time to only be shed because they are antlers and then regrown each spring. And yes, Chris, the bone in this jaw is actually growing and changing. Uh, their osteoblasts are coming in, which are bone cells, and then proteoglycans, which basically provide scaffolding to the bone, are just going for it. And then cartilage is coming into play, too, to help elongate uh, the structures, along with chondrocytes, which is cartilage cells, basically, for lack of better terms. And this process has been described, this process of jaw transformation has been been described as making bone as fast as possible with as little material as possible. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right? I'm kind of like, yeah, ouch, talk about yeah. growing pains. Yeah, no wonder no, they don't yeah. eat, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. And, but why? Once again, to fight with males. But then research has also shown that it works because studies have shown that Male salmon that have larger jaws and are more dominant basically have a higher reproductive advantage with females. Yeah. 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 So, it's, yeah, it's like a lot of species, you know. One of the things I, I look at with this thing and I'm like, okay, you got the jaws to fight and stuff. What the heck is the purpose of that hump? Because it's not like fat reserves. It's not like water reserves in a camel or something. What no. is it? What does it do? I- that's crazy. I, the truth of the matter is researchers don't fully know, um, but they do think that males that have a larger dorsal hump will enhance their mating success. Yeah, yeah. And that it might protect them for, from blows, from that, from that nasty mouth, if they can just okay. kind of like turn their head and just put the hump in the, in, you know, near the other one's mouth. Uh, so just crazy. Right. And, uh, yeah, I, I had, I had a lot of fun with this one too, Chris. I'm such a dork. I, I found a study as well. That's called dorsal hump morphology in pink salmon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's in the journal morphology from 2014. Ask can you sell shall receive on PubMed and Google scholar. So yep, thank you to yep. them. Uh, and they, this was fun for me cause I, um, they did a lot of, they were, this is the first group to actually do like uh, really intense um, histochemical or histology of what is actually in the hump. Uh, is it fat? Is it bone? What is it? And so uh, the histological, like looking at the cells and classifying the cells and staining the cells using electrophoresis and stuff that I've had fun doing in labs before um, and some of my uh, part-time postdoc work. But anyways, the results showed from Kuski and coworkers that uh, – the dorsal hump of pink salmon is formed due to an increase in connective tissue, not cartilage. And basically the growth of these, um, these little bones called uh, neural and intraneural spines. So they have a little increase in bone as well to provide that enlarged uh, dorsal hump. 
It's just, it just. I love it. I love you, Salmon. I love. Oh my gosh, I love it. It's fat. It's fast. I'm in awe. I am completely in awe. It, it, it's okay. We can finish the podcast now, <laughs> or no? That's Pretty fine. much no. Uh, <laughs> There's yeah. still lots of cool stuff. I mean, we just that's just the the, the morphology, and mm-hmm. you know, we still got to get to a little bit more behavior and and reproduction, the spawning, because that's a big thing. All right, really quick, let's 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 get there. So uh, they start their lives in fresh water. So the 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 salmon fry and smolts feed on plankton and insects and you know, crustaceans and things in the river system. They go out to the ocean. They'll feed on zooplankton, smaller fish, uh, herring, things like that, squid, uh, other crustaceans. And then again, we said once they enter, re-enter freshwater, they stop feeding. They are able, like sockeye salmon are able to filter zooplankton and small animals through these gill rakers, which I thought was interesting. I think we've covered this before. I th- I, I'm thinking maybe whale shark 200 plus episodes ago. But what gill rakers are, are bone or cartilage in the uh, the gills that filters these prey and then drives it into their esophagus. Okay. So they can eat. Uh Salmon are preyed on many things. We've talked about it, bears. Uh, I mean, all the way from other fish when they're little, killer whales, sea lions, yeah, Chris, otters. I, yeah. yeah, Chris, I was reading that uh, a typical orca eats around 25 kilograms of salmon each day. So looking at the 300 orcas uh, that are resident in the British Columbia area, they're, they're eating about 1,000 tons of salmon per year. Wow. Now, is that the type A, type B, type C, or type D orcas? Good question. <laughs> just, yeah, I don't know. You'll have to go back and listen to that. That, that was a, that yeah. was wasn't that two episodes orcas? Yeah, yeah two episodes. Yeah, that, we, uh, yeah. We we gave them two episodes, not salmon. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it, it's <laughs> the reason I say that is they, there was the type D, the very elusive ocean going ones in the, yes. in the southern hemisphere. Yes. There's some video of them uh, hunting fish, so that's why I brought it up. All right, so. Getting back to this, so the physiology setting this up, their behaviors leading to spawning, what is going on? Well, Chris, when looking at salmon behavior in general, uh, there's really two different behavior types, and they're classified as a stream-type salmon and an ocean-type salmon. The stream-type of salmon spend one to two years in the stream, and really rely a lot on those stream ecosystems and the stream nutrition, as you were talking about. They're found m- mostly in the north, and they, and then when they do go out into the ocean, they'll typically migrate really far into the ocean, like they'll go deep. Uh, whereas the ocean type of salmon, with their behavior, they swim out to the ocean within three months. But when they are in the ocean, they'll stick more close to the the coast. And once again, whether they're a stream type or an ocean type salmon uh, depends on the species and also where they live as well. So is that is that going to influence how, I guess, the spawning? I mean, does that impact it at all? Well, in general, Chris, the, with salmon, uh, the spawning season of the age at which they decide to spawn... Uh, as you mentioned, depending on the species, it can be two, three, 
four years. Uh, but then like in the, the king or the schnooks, Chinook salmon, it might be seven or eight years. Yeah. Uh, so the age and the size, and then also the season of spawning of when they're going to do it. Uh, so whether or not they're ocean type or um, or stream type uh, will probably play into that variation as well. But the most common salmon runs per location in general are going to be in the summer and the fall with some streams having runs in the spring and winter as well, just depending on where they're located. Well, this might be a good good point. Just take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Okay, here we are. All the buildup, <laughs> all the morphological changes. The color, the jaw, the hump, yeah. Uh, the swim, the great migration. I, I have a great quote. Steve Lindley from NOAA he said, Salmon are one of the, the extreme cases where they put everything into reproducing just once. And then getting old and dying almost immediately thereafter. It is right, one of the few vertebrates that does this. I, Chris, I know it's it's just mind blowing. All of that to die. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, more or less. Of course, you're hopefully re um, uh, reproducing along the way. But yes, it's just. It's crazy. And so there is a scientific word for this. Um, Pacific salmon are known as semoparis. And what that means is that most adult, the adults will die um, shortly after reproduction and become food or nutrients for the freshwater systems in which they live in. And this semoparis, um, meaning dying after reproduction, that is in contrast to the other type of reproductive state, which does include um, other types of fish that are similar, which are similar similar taxonomically to salmon, is called idioparis um, or idioparity. And so that's that's what most vertebrates do, where multiple multiple reproductive cycles over the course of its lifetime. So not salmon, nope. They do all this, and then, of course, they do find their way to their uh, to their natal grounds. And it's not like they just get there and the female have laid their eggs and they're good to go. No, no, no. Uh, they still have to do some courtship. And for salmon, uh, the courtship behavior can last for several hours. With the male, uh, tired and hungry as he is, will uh, basically vibrate and dart back and forth, cross back and forth in front of the female, while the female is busy digging her nest in the gravel. And this is called the red, R-E-D-D. And the female is somewhat paying attention, acting a little coy, digging her nest. (laughs) Somewhat paying attention. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> to this poor, poor uh, male. But studies have shown a male that vibrates more uh, must be using those fast twitch muscles that he mm-hmm. built on his way swimming upstream and jumping over dams and doing Lord knows what else. Um, but female salmon will uh, more likely, but female salmon will uh, selectively choose males that vibrate more. And when a female does choose a male because she likes his vibration, she likes his color, she likes his lovely male humps and his nasty jaw, <laughs> she'll deposit her eggs and then she'll shake next to the male. And her little shaky shaky 
helps the male uh, release his sperm. So they have an external form of fertilization, right? The eggs are already out in the nest and then the male will, um, and then the male will uh, release the semen and the eggs will be fertilized. Now, what's super cool, and I did not know this about salmon, is after the female salmon deposits her eggs anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 up to 14,000, uh, the, uh, um, the male will fertilize them, and then he stands guard. So both parents of salmon will guard the, the red, R-E-D-D, I'm not sure if it's reed or red, uh, until they die. And this death might take up to 25 days. Yeah, starving the whole time. Starving the whole time, um, just protecting their eggs, standing left, guard, yeah. just yep. hanging out. Like just, yeah, it's just, it's really incredible. Uh, and the eggs uh, that are developing depending on the temperature, will um, will grow and mature for anywhere from 90 to 150 days. I think we take so, – I've been – sorry, I've been interrupting you. Oh, no, you talk sometimes. Do. No, it, it's – I remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about this. Like a mantis shrimp. Think of the thought process. Like we, we take animals for granted. I think in the last few decades we're, we're respecting them more and we, we see them for what they are 25 days standing guard over your eggs while you are starving, suffering, you know, there's got to be some, some feedback mechanism in the brain saying, okay, you might be hungry, but I'm not leaving or the intelligence. That's what I'm trying to get at. That, that if you, I'm not trying to assign human emotion or anything to no, it. No, like loyalty or dedication. But I feel you. I, I mean, I'll be hanging out with Maddox in the living room, and we're playing with blocks or reading or whatever. And I'm sorry, I run in the kitchen and grab a snack and leave <laughs> <Yeah>. him unattended. <laughs> now, minute, yeah. the, the room is childproof for, yeah. for the most part. But I mean, I, I, you know, I can't even go in a half an hour or an hour without running to grab a snack and leaving yeah. my kid and hoping for the best. So. I mean, twenty-five it, days. That's insane. That that that's really. It's not they just fertilize and forget and go and die. It's no, they stand there, or swim there for twenty-five days, up to twenty-five incredible. days guarding. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. Fish, the animal kingdom's amazing. And while they're there, they might get eaten. They might not. They might just. I, I, and I don't really know what stimulates the death process, but I, I'd have to presume without looking at the literature or talking to a specialist that it must just be starvation, right? And the body yeah, just eventually. shutting down. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Can't breathe or, you know, they they're, can't aerate their gills as much and, you know, blood doesn't circulate as well and eventually death. Yeah. But if they're lucky, all of that, the migration, the, mm. the shape-shifting, the courtship, the standing guard while starving, all of it, it's worthwhile if you can pass your genetics along, right? Yep, yep. That's why they do it. But Chris, unfortunately, estimates are that only one to ten percent of the eggs, or when they hatch the fry, uh, survive into adulthood. Yeah. So, yes, it's definitely an uphill battle. Um, pardon the pun uh, for them to make it back to the same stream where they were born to reproduce. But it's, it's really fascinating, the whole life cycle 
of these uh, of the salmon fish fry because they start off as eggs in the gravel of a stream bed, and then once they hatch, they have their yolk sacs, and they use that as nutrition to help them grow initially. And this stage is called the Elvin, A-L-E-V-I-N. Once the yolk sac is gone and absorbed, they become fry and they need Mm -hmm. to start finding their own food, right? And as you mentioned, they'll eat invertebrates and other stream plankton and things like this. And then depending on if they're an ocean type or um, or a stream type, There'll be some differences, and obviously there's life cycle then. Uh, but once a salmon decides, whether it's three months in or one to two years later, once they decide to start heading to the salt water, their body will um, initiate this process called smoltification. Mm-hmm. And this smoltification is so they can survive in salt water. And so this stage is called the smolt. And this is really important where they're sometimes in transition in estuaries, uh, for instance, like the Puget Sound, really important transition zones between these freshwater and saltwater environments. Environments. Now, I did not do any deep dives on the physiology of how a salmon does this multiplication and becomes a smolt and can now hang out in the saltwater. However, I'm going to presume that's similar to how a bull shark goes back and forth by basically um, using their kidneys and their livers and their gills to uh, and their urine to basically help regulate um, the amount of salt within their blood system. But if you're fascinated by how they do it, uh, send me an email and I will look it up. But yeah. uh, Or listen to our bull shark episode a few weeks right. ago because Chris and I really dorked out a lot on how bull sharks are able to um, live in fresh water and in, mm-hmm, and in salt water. So, uh, but I'm not exactly, I don't, I don't want to say for sure that that's how salmon do it, but it, but it definitely has to do with salt regulation regulation and I'm probably simplifying it because I bet it is I knowing salmon from what I learned about everything else they do physiologically speaking it's probably really gnarly uh and so we might have to uh talk about it again sometime here on the air and then the last life cycle portion of the salmon is it's an adult it's living its life in the ocean uh it's time to spawn or lay its eggs uh and it does all those body changes that we talked about earlier in the podcast and up the stream it swims. Yeah, it's crazy. It's really crazy. And you, you did a really good job on talking about uh, as far as the con- conservation where we're at. Now, before we get to sustainability, you know, which salmon's probably good to eat or not, any organizations out there that you want to highlight? Yes, Chris. I actually found a lot of my information and really enjoyed the wild salmon center.org. So that's wild. S-A-L-M-O-N center.org, wildsalmoncenter.org. They're on Facebook um, and other uh, forms of social media. So give them a like and a follow on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And the Wild Salmon Center focuses on wild uh, salmon and they focus on strongholds. So areas that are rich in salmon to begin with and have a history there. Uh, They build powerful alliances. They work together and they have several different campaigns. in different watersheds uh, without the Pacific, uh, throughout the Pacific, 
rim area, and just lots of ways for you, for for both the consumer and the conservationist to get involved, ways to donate, several different resources out there, uh, newsletters, just a a lot of education. Uh, So check out the Wild Salmon Center uh, at wildsalmoncenter.org. Give them a like and a follow, and they are working hard really hard to protect um, the uh, stronghold populations of wild salmon and rivers around uh, the entire North Pacific. Yeah. Just love the work. Love the work these organizations are doing and glad that we can support them. So to answer for, for me personally, New Zealand's salmon farming industry has been recognized as the world's greenest by the global aquaculture performance index. So um, I can eat sustainable salmon down here. Uh, maybe our Aussie friends can buy some of our salmon or anybody in this part of the world or wherever we ship it. So that answered that question for me. Now for everybody in North America or in Europe, one of the things I, I know we, I think we've, we've mentioned seafood watch in the past. Uh, it's been a while, but you know, they had a really good salmon buying guide. And you can go to seafoodwatch.org, and it's out of the Monterey Bay Aquarium, uh, one of our favorites. And they have a salmon buying guide. And you know, in general, their their recommendations are over sixty percent of U.S. production of salmon is certified, and only a tiny amount is rated as a void. So, wild caught salmon generally in the U.S. is sustainable. But there are some problems with Chinook off South British Columbia, where I used to fish, so probably not sustainable anymore. Um, Not good to take them out because that's an area of concern. Where it gets tricky is this farmed salmon. And that's what you mentioned with aquaculture. I agree. We need to get an expert in here uh, to talk about it. The best choice is, is New Zealand is they say that the farm salmon is out of New Zealand. Good alternatives is Atlantic salmon from Maine, Norway, uh, Scotland's Orkney Islands. They also said, you know, parts of British Columbia and Nova Scotia are good alternatives. Um, Chile, the only good place is in the Magellanes region. I definitely did not say that right. So it gets a little tough when you you look. So what they said is make sure it's certified the Marine Stewardship Council or the Aquaculture Stewardship Council. That's that's your best bet, you know. Farm salmon, Atlantic salmon from Norway, Canada, Nova Scotia, or Maine in the United States are generally pretty good with Atlantic. Yeah, Chris, absolutely. And I think to add to that, another uh, tip to buying salmon for consumption is to buy it in season. Um, there was a study done by Oceana that showed that salmon fraud happened only 7% of the time in the summer when fresh wild salmon is very, very uh, easy to attain, but up to 40% in the winter. So, uh, so during season cooking at home is also a great way to, to, uh, to do it, but you want to ask a lot of questions, um, whether it's your uh, local butcher shop or um, fish seafood store uh, from where you're buying it, or of course at a restaurant. And you're probably going to have to pay the price too. That's the thing is, is if something sounds too cheap to be true, it 
<laughs> it probably, probably is. Yeah. It probably is. And of course, there's visual cues. My my uh, my my bumpa. My grandpa always taught me that um, visual and smell. Right. Uh, that's when if you can smell fish and doesn't smell good, then that's that's you know you want to stay don't away from it. it. So don't look don't at the color it. and the texture. And then just a final thing: if you're looking for another episode similar to this, uh, one of our our top ones has been "Bye Bye Bluefin Tuna," episode two thirty eight. So I remember being so nervous to do that. Yeah. I studied for like two weeks. Yeah, and, yeah. So maybe it's really good if it's one of our top uh, downloads. It is. It is. Yeah. People, yeah, yeah. people want to know, and they want to know where their food's coming from. So sure. Great episode, Angie. I know this one went long. We've been going long this month because these species are just blowing us out of the water, literally, (laughs) figuratively. But thank you for listening. Uh, Thank you for supporting us. Share this with your friends. We're growing like mad and and just from the bottom of our heart. Thank you so much. And we'll be back next week for another episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Stunned by Salmons because they are just... Stunning. I loved it. Thank you. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.